Pesach, we always add one day. So the Torah itself tells us that on Pesach, on Passover, on we should celebrate the first day as a Yom Tiv, as a holy day, and the seventh day as a Yom Tiv, as a holy day. So the first and seventh day are both holy days. Um, the Torah, the first day, it's in the five days in between are Chol HaMoed. Outside of Israel, we add an extra day to each Yom Tiv. So outside of Israel, um, we have two days for the first Yom Tiv, so that's why we had Thursday and Friday, and two days for the second Yom Tiv, giving us eight days of Pesach, the seventh and eighth, we have, and that's going to be um, Tuesday night, Wednesday, and Thursday. So we, we celebrate, of course, the first day of Pesach as a Yom Tiv, because that was the day of the Exodus. That was the day that we left Egypt, while the um, death of the firstborn was at midnight. We slaughtered the Passover sacrifice the day before Passover, and we ate it that night, the night of our Seder. We made our ancestors made a Seder in Egypt, where they ate um, where they ate the Passover sacrifice along with matzah and marar bitter herbs. However, that was only um, uh, uh, however that was only what pre the preparation to leave Egypt. They actually did not leave Egypt that night. They were told not to leave their homes that night. So they only left Egypt the next day, um, the next morning, or really at midday, the next day was when they actually left Egypt. So that's why we celebrate the first day of Passover as a Yom Tov. Why do we celebrate the seventh day of Passover as a Yom Tov? So the, <laughs> the Torah does not tell us explicitly why the seventh day is a Yom Tov as well. Um, we have another seven-day holiday, which is Sukkot. There's also seven days. And there, only the first day of Sukkot is a holiday. Right after Sukkot, we have another holiday called Shemini Atzeret, um, which outside of Israel, we call the second day Simchat Torah. So we have another holiday afterwards, but the Sukkot itself doesn't have a holiday at the end. Pesach does. Why does Pesach have a holiday at the end? So our sages say that the seventh day of Pesach celebrates the miracle of the splitting of the sea. And that is why we have a Yom Tov that day. And indeed, because of that, when we read the Torah on the seventh day of Pesach, we read about the miracle of the splitting of the sea um, in the Torah. It's um, in the book of Exodus, in the portion of Beshalach. Um, and we read with the Song of the Sea. We read that um, on, the, um, on the seventh day of Pesach, which is going to be, which is going to be on Wednesday. So given that it's coming up, um, I'd like to share the story, which is perhaps we can call this the greatest miracle that our people have ever experienced. Um, while we experienced many great miracles during the Exodus, the 10 plagues, of course, um, we, throughout the desert, we um, had manna fall from heaven and uh, we had a rock that spewed forth water and other great miracles as we were in the desert continuously. However, the, perhaps the greatest miracle of all, definitely the greatest miracle of all, is the miracle of the splitting of the sea. And um, it was a um, very, um, very powerful miracle. Um, and also the contrast of um, Israel being stuck and being saved was extremely powerful. And it has great lessons for us today. So I'm going to tell you the story and then talk a little bit about the lessons and what it means for us today. So Israel left Egypt um, after the death of the firstborn, as we said on the first day of Passover. All of Israel left Egypt. They had been slaves. They were now free people, free to leave, and they all leave Egypt together. Um, they all travel together. Um, it says from 
Ramses, where they were based in, in, the, in, the, in the area of Goshen in Egypt, they traveled to Sukkos, and from there they went straight out into the desert. The Torah tells us that when they went to the desert, they're headed toward the land of Canaan, the promised land that God had promised them. They're heading towards the land of Canaan. God says that um, God could have taken them direct. The most direct route from Egypt to Canaan would be along the Mediterranean Sea. Head directly north, Egypt is southwest of Israel. If they head directly north from Egypt, um, along the Mediterranean Sea, they reach the Philistine land, or today, what today would be Gaza, and from there they can go directly into the Promised Land. However, God did not want to take them that way, did not want them to see war with the Philistines straight away, um, and so God took them through, the, also God's going to give them the Torah, Hashem took them through the desert, um, so he took them, instead of taking them north along the Mediterranean Sea, he took them northeast towards the Sinai Desert. So they head towards the Sinai Desert. And as they head out, the Torah tells us that there is a cloud, a massive cloud that moves in front of them. And they follow this cloud. This great cloud representing God's glory continues to move in front of them throughout their time in the desert. Later, when they would build the Mishkan, they'll build the tabernacle, the temple in the desert, the cloud will hover over the Mishkan, over the, um, uh, over the temple in the desert. But for now, the cloud is leading them in front of them as they are leaving Egypt. Um, when night falls, um, the cloud disappears and a pillar of fire comes that lights up their way and they're now able to see. They continue traveling by day and by night. So they travel out of Egypt. They go out of Egypt. Now, originally, when Mo Moshe had told Pharaoh that they were going to leave Egypt, that asked, them, sorry, asked Pharaoh for permission to leave Egypt, originally he only asked Pharaoh for permission to let the people go for three days. He said, let us go for three days. And that's it. That's all he asked for. He didn't ask to leave permanently. He only asked Pharaoh for permission to leave for three days. Now, he didn't say he was going to come back after three days. But still, he only asked for permission to leave for the three days. And so even once after 10 plagues, and after um, Pharaoh finally allows them to leave, the Pharaoh is under the impression that they're only going for three days and they're coming right back. However, after three days, the people don't return. So now Pharaoh's upset, and it's time to bring the people back. Meanwhile, as the people travel for three days straight, they travel into the desert, and um, as they, they travel away from Egypt, and after three days, Hashem tells, the Moshe, tells Moshe to tell the people to turn around, turn around, and head south, they were already up in the Sinai Desert, head south towards the Red Sea, which is in Hebrew, the Yam Suf. Um, there's debates of exactly what the Yam Suf is, but presume, we presume it's the Red Sea. So head south towards the Red Sea, um, which is back somewhat in the direction of Egypt. And Hashem says that Pharaoh will hear that you have turned around and begun to, before they were heading northeast, towards the Sinai Desert. Now they're heading south towards the Red Sea. 
So head south, and then Pharaoh will think you're lost. You've turned south, back towards Egypt. Um, you got scared in the desert, and you're heading back towards Egypt. You're lost, and Pharaoh will think that they will be able to easily bring you back to Egypt. Indeed, Pharaoh hears that the people are not coming back, and he hears that they are lost in the desert because they turned around. And now you can imagine for the people of Israel itself, they had left Egypt after hundreds of years of slavery, and they finally left Egypt. And now they're marching towards the promised land. And now Moshe tells them to turn around. And you can imagine it would have been a difficult thing for them to do because they were heading back towards, um, back, back into the trap, back into Egypt. Nevertheless, they did not question Moshe and they continue, they follow Moshe exactly where he says to go. So Pharaoh hears the people turned around and he realized who are heading south. He realized they're not coming back to Egypt, but they appear to be lost in the desert. And so Pharaoh um, decides, tells his people, we are going to go and chase them and we are going to bring them back. So the Torah tells us Pharaoh took 600 choice chariots. Now chariots was the equivalent of the ancient tank. Um, in other words, when they used to fight with swords and spears and arrows, um, chariots were uh, protected, couldn't hit them um, because they were, the people inside could not be hit and they could meanwhile shoot arrows at you from their, um, from their chariots. So the Egyptians, part of the, the Egyptian might was their great chariots that they had. So Pharaoh takes chariots, 600 chariots with all the chariots of Egypt and there are cavalry, many horsemen, and many foots, foot people on foot, and they all get together to um, attack Israel. Now, the, the Talmud points out that, um, that we, of course, there were 10 plagues earlier in Egypt. Of the 10 plagues, the um, four, fifth plague had been the plague of pestilence, or dever, where all of the animals had died out. So where did they have horses from? So earlier, the Torah had said that those that were God-fearing, um, Moses, when Moses warned them about the plague, Moses warned the Egyptians, if you don't want your animals to die, bring your animals indoors. So those Egyptians that listened to Moses and brought their animals indoors, their animals survived. It was the rest of the Egyptians whose animals died. It was now those Egyptians who had brought their animals indoors and had listened to Moses, they were the ones who were now offering their horses to chase Israel. And so we hear the Talmud says, even the best Egyptians um, were bad. So the Egyptians now um, chase Israel. Israel turns around. It is now the sixth day after their exodus, the sixth day after the exodus from Egypt. And um, they're now, or what today would be the sixth day of Passover. And they turn around and they re at this point, they reach the Red Sea. They've come to the Red Sea, and um, they can't go further because they're stuck at the Red Sea. And so, uh, and this is, uh, the Torah tells us, um, uh, 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 so they're at the Red Sea, and now the Egyptians, are. they turn around, they see the Egyptians are a huge army coming towards them. The people get very scared, and they turn to Moshe, and they say, are there not enough graves in Egypt that you took us out here to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us? 
to take us out of Egypt? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone and let us just continue uh, with the uh, uh, serving the Egyptians as their slaves? Here and now we're going to die here in the desert. And so um, the Midrash tells us, Yonatan, the Targum Yonatan ben which is an early Midrash, tells us that over here, Israel actually split into four different groups. There were four different groups of Jews that debated over what to do at this time. What should they do? Some Jews said, let us surrender and return to Egypt. We tried. We tried leaving Egypt. It was a good shot. Uh, we got this far, but it failed. And we may as well give up and go back to the um, go back to Egypt. Surrender to the Egyptians. There was another group that said, though we are outnumbered, and though they are skilled warriors and we are former slaves, and though they have horses and um, chariots, we and they have better weapons than us, we should still fight them. We'll fight, we'll put up a good fight and either go down fighting or God will make a miracle and save us. There was a third group who said, we don't stand a chance fighting. Let us all jump into the sea and commit mass suicide. And then there was a fourth group. The fourth group said, let us pray to God. What better can we do whenever we are in trouble as a people? We always turn to God in prayer. Let us pray to God. Four different groups. One group wanted to surrender. One group wants to fight. One group wants to jump into the sea. One group wants to pray to God. Who was right? So God tells Moshe, all four groups are wrong. Do not surrender to Egypt because you see Egypt today, you'll never see them again. Do not fight them. God will fight for you this time. You have to do nothing. Don't drown. Don't worry. Stand back. God will save you. And for those that were praying to God, God said, now is not a time of prayer. Now is a time of action, not a time to pray. And so the Torah says, you shall be silent. You must <coughs> stay silent. So God says, all of these groups are wrong. Rather, what are you going to do? And so God is going to give them instructions shortly of exactly what they are supposed to do. Meanwhile, it gets, it night falls. And as night falls, the Egyptians are getting closer to them. And so normally at night, they had this pillar of cloud that went in front of them. And now the pillar of cloud, normally at night, the pillar of cloud would disappear. And in its place, the pillar of fire would come. However, this night, the pillar of fire came, but the pillar of, and went in front of them, uh, but the pillar of cloud did not disappear. Instead, the pillar of cloud went behind them and separated between them and the Egyptians. So the Egyptians could not get any closer to Israel. For them, it was dark. They did not see Israel. It was night. And they were not able to see Israel, nor were they able to get passed through this thick cloud, and they were not able to um, get any closer to Israel. Um, in addition, we're told that the spears and arrows that they shot at Israel were all caught within the cloud and did not harm Israel at all. 
At this point, Hashem tells Moshe, Daber el b'nei Yisrael v'yisau, tell Israel to travel forward, forward into the sea. Now, this is not the same as the group that said they wanted to jump into the sea to commit suicide. Hashem wants them to go into the sea, but Hashem says, go into the sea and I will save you. So um, Hashem says, tell the people to go forward into the sea. Now, the Midrash tells us, the Talmud says, that nobody wanted to go into the sea. Everybody was afraid to start walking into the sea. Everyone was afraid. There was one person, the leader of the tribe of Judah, Nachshon ben Aminada, who did not ask any questions. He was commanded, they were commanded by Moses to go forward into the sea. So Nachshon began to walk into the sea. He had to walk into the sea and he kept walking, walking until it got as high as his neck. He could not walk any further. And at that point, as we'll see in a moment, the sea split. Meanwhile, Hashem told Moshe, to stretch out his hand over the sea. Now for the miracles in Egypt, when he had created blood and frogs and lice, he always used his stick. Hashem said, here I don't want you to use a stick because Israel always would say, and even the Egyptians would say, that Moshe has a magical stick. It's the stick that's magical. It's the stick that's able to perform all these miracles. But without the stick, Moshe cannot perform any miracle. So here Moshe did not use the stick. He stretches out his hand over the sea, and the sea split. The Torah tells us, The water stood as a wall on their right side and their left side. The Torah is very explicit exactly what it looked like when the sea split that there was a wall of water on both sides and there was an empty space between the two walls of water where the people were able to walk through. Further, the Torah tells us that they went on dried land in the middle of the sea. Normally, the water at the bottom of the ocean, at the bottom of a sea, would be uh, the, sorry, the ground, the bottom of the sea would be wet. The ground would be very moist and very damp and hard to walk on. Here, the, the ground itself was totally dry and easy to walk on. And so they were able to walk through the sea with walls on both sides, allowing them to pass straight through um, with, uh, with um, dry land beneath them. The Midrash gives us much greater detail to how this miracle was. The Midrash says that it actually not only was there water on both sides as described in the Torah, but there was also water on top of them. And so it was essentially they had a tunnel, a very large tunnel that they were able to, um, not the way it shows it in the movie, uh, but there was a large tunnel that they were able to walk through um, when there was water on top of them um, and water on their sides as well. Um, the, um, the Midrash further tells us not only was there one path through the sea, but the sea actually split into 12 paths for each of the 12 tribes, and each tribe went through a different path. 
Why did each tribe go through a different path? So um, the Arizal, the great Kabbalist, the Arizal explains that every tribe has a different way to connect to God. Every tribe had in the days that we lived in our tribal communities, um, every tribe had a different version of prayer, um, different way, different form of prayer um, in that they would connect with God. And so therefore each tribe, because this was a powerful moment as we'll soon talk about to connect with God, each tribe had its own path through the sea. And so as they traveled through the sea, the Midrash tells us as they traveled through the sea, there were also um, trees that were growing on the sides uh, with fruit that they were able to pick. They were also able to stick their hand into the walls of water uh, or stick a cup into the walls of water and take water, which although seawater is usually salty, uh, and although the water here was frozen, they could actually stick their cups into it, take water out, and it would be fresh water for them to be able to drink. Um, these are all additions from the Midrash. And in this way, they were able, they crossed through the sea. Um, uh, they, they crossed through the sea. So seeing Israel going through, the, as Israel went through the sea, now the Midrash also tells us that they did not cross from one end of the Red Sea to another. That would be quite a distance, but rather they simply went in a circle. In other words, they came out the same place that they entered or in the same side that they entered. They essentially went in a circle through the sea. Um, at this point, the cloud that had been blocking Israel from the Egyptians lifts. It's the middle of the night with a cloud that had been blocking Israel from the Egyptians lifts. And the Egyptians see Israel walking into a split sea. So the Egyptians begin to follow Israel, chasing Israel into the sea. And Israel is far ahead now. Um, as they go through the sea, the Egyptians come into the sea out uh, after them. As Israel begins to exit the sea, and all of Israel, and Israel was a lot of people at the time. We know there were 600,000 men of war. Um, about we, we can estimate there are about one and a half million people in total, a lot of people. And um, as Israel is um, coming, it would take them some time to cross. But as Israel is coming out of the sea, the Egyptians are going into the sea. When Israel, as Israel is exiting and all the Egyptians are in the sea, God makes the ground beneath them soft again. So when Israel was walking through, it was hard. Now the ground beneath the Egyptians is soft and the chariots begin to sink in the ground. And then God brought the pillar of fire closer to them and the heat of the fire melted the wheels of the chariots, which were metal, uh, which are iron, and um, they begin to melt. The chariots are stuck, are not moving. And the Egyptians are now confused, saying, let us flee, for God is, um, for God is fighting on behalf of Israel. At this point, all of Israel, it was um, toward morning now, and um, all of Israel has now left the sea. And now God tells Moshe, to stretch his arm again over the sea. And Moshe does so, and the water now goes back, falls down over the Egyptians, tossing them about in the sea. And as a result, all of the Egyptians, the entire Egyptian army, as a result, drowned, 
they all died, all of them together with their chariots and their horses. Um, they had, as was common then, they brought much gold and silver and other valuables with them to war. Um, they would bring, it would be kind of a sign of um, victory. They weren't afraid of losing it, um, a sign of confidence that they would bring um, a lot of valuables to war. They brought many of their valuables to war. Israel already had taken many of their valuables when they left Egypt. Now they brought it to war with them and God washed it all up on the seashore right where Israel was standing. Um, and so they see the uh, bodies of the Egyptians with the horses and the chariots, as well as the gold and silver, all washing up on the seashore. And this way, all of Egypt dies. And as God had promised, as you see Egypt today, you will never see them again. Um, they never saw, the Egyptians never came to attack them again. Um, it says they were not, um, it, the Torah tells us, which can be translated either not one remained, in other words, not a single Egyptian survived, or um, the Midrash tells us, not one, only one remained. Who was the one that remained? So the Midrash tells us that the only one who survived was Pharaoh himself. Now, why did Pharaoh himself survive? So Pharaoh himself survived to see the destruction of his own people and to see the, his people's destruction. But also earlier, God had told Moses, uh, sorry, Moses had told Pharaoh that if God, when Moses had brought the 10 plagues, Moses had taught Pharaoh, if Moses, wa if God wants, God can strike you in a moment, can strike you dead. But God has left you alive and has not struck you dead in order that you go on to speak of my greatness throughout the world. And so the uh, Midrash tells us that, Mo that Pharaoh did survive so that he can go on and tell the world about what he witnessed. Um, and he, Pharaoh himself, will go and tell everyone what had happened and what God had done. At this point, Moshe and the people see how Hashem had saved them from Egypt. They see the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Um, and they see how moments earlier they had been in a desperate situation with the Egyptians behind them and nowhere to go, nowhere to run. And now um, the Egyptians were gone and gone forever and they were now safe. And so having seen this great miracle, Moshe leads the people in singing a song to God thanking God for this great miracle known as the Az Yashir. Um, then he sang Az Yashir Moshe, and it's a song that we sing every single day in our prayers, the song of the sea, the song that Moshe sang at the sea. We are told that in addition to Moshe singing a song, his sister Miriam also composed a song, and while Moshe and Israel, while Moshe sang a song um, just with um, the lyrics, just with the words, um, and singing, uh, Miriam with other women brought in uh, musical instruments and they brought their own song and began to sing as well, um, thanking God for these great miracles. And only after this miracle did they then continue on in the desert. So this was the great miracle of the song of the Red Sea. Um, now the great, the, the miracle of the Red Sea that we said happened on the Eve of the seventh day of Passover, it happened on the night of the seventh day of Passover. 
which is what we, it's the miracle we celebrate on Passover, in a sense, is a greater miracle than any other miracle that happened to us in our history. It was a greater miracle than the 10 plagues, both in the extent of what happened for a sea to split. Um, it is a public miracle, a visible miracle. Anybody who sees it, it is obviously something very unusual happening, split in a way as the Torah describes with walls of water on both sides, um, split as the Torah describes with dry land at the bottom for, uh, for them to walk through. And um, if we add the details of the Midrash uh, with water on top of them and 12 different paths, it was a very, it was a miracle that unlike the 12, the other plagues, most of which were not, were unusual that all firstborn should die or darkness, um, they were unusual, but not miracles. You can see a clear open miracle. This was a clear and open miracle for everyone to see. The, um, the Midrash tells us, describes, it says, that the, the miracle of the revelation of God that a regular person was able to see at the, was able to see at the Red Sea was greater than what the greatest prophets were able to see. Greater prophet, great prophets later had great revelations. However, all of their revelations weren't close to the great miracle of the sea where they were able to see the hand of God. It says, um, Vayar Yisrael Gedola, Israel saw the great hand of God. They were able to see the hand and see how God is acting. And so, um, so it, it is in a sense the greatest miracle that our people ever witnessed. And it is something we should point out like the giving of the Torah, which is going to happen a couple weeks forward, um, for nine days after they leave, 50 days after they leave Egypt, um, we're gonna celebrate on the festival of Shavuot, like the giving of the Torah, it is something that happened before all of Israel. The entire Jewish people saw this miracle together. And so unlike most miracles claimed throughout much of history, and even most miracles that happened in our own history, the miracles happened in front of a handful of people. Here, the miracles happened in front of everyone. This great miracle happened in front of one and a half million people. All of Israel, all of our ancestors saw this great, amazing miracle of the splitting of the sea. And if anything, this shows us how nothing is impossible for God. The creator of the universe has total control over his creation. And God can do anything that he chooses. Nothing at all is impossible for him. It also shows us how God can save us during a moment of trouble. A person can be in a moment of trouble and then the next moment, suddenly everything can be okay. And it shows us how God can save us suddenly um, in a way that we never expect, um, in a way that we never thought Hashem can always save us. There are those that explain that we often try to find different solutions when we run into trouble. Similar to the Israel, the way they stood at the sea, that there were, as we said earlier, there were different groups. There were those that wanted to surrender. Sometimes we choose to surrender. We have a challenge and we give up. We say we give up. We tried. We give up. Sometimes we said there were Jews that wanted to fight. Sometimes we have a challenge. And we say, yes, we're going to fight the challenge. 
which is actually, some, of course, sometimes necessary to fight the challenge. Sometimes, um, sometimes we say, we're gonna jump into the sea. Um, we're gonna forget about it, pretend it doesn't exist. Um, don't um, not think about it, some, which is sometimes also a solution. Sometimes we turn to God and we pray all different ways to respond to challenges. But we have to remember that ultimately God has the ability to pull us out of this challenge without us doing any of the above. God has the ability to take us out of any challenge. And, all to, uh, and God can take us out of even the most difficult challenges. Whatever we face, God has the ability to take us out. Now we learn many amazing, we learn many powerful life lessons from this great miracle as well. Perhaps the greatest lesson that we learned was from Nachshon, the fellow who jumped into the sea. Moshe tells them they have the Egyptians behind them, they have the sea in front of them, and Moshe tells them that God said to travel forward into the sea. It was something that appeared to be impossible, something that how do you jump into a sea? It's not possible to jump into a sea. It appeared to be totally impossible. But Moshe said to do it. This is what they were supposed to do. So Nachshon, without asking any questions, went ahead and he went forward exactly as commanded. And it teaches us when facing a challenge, when God says to do something, if we have a mitzvah that we have to do, even if it is extremely difficult, even if we see no easy way to accomplish the mitzvah, you must keep going and do it anyway. No matter the difficulties, no matter the challenges facing you, move forward, keep going, don't stop. And that was the lesson from Nachshon. He wasn't afraid to take the plunge, take the plunge and jump into the sea. Now in Kabbalah, in Chassidus, we explain that the splitting of the sea was not just a revelation of God in that we saw God's hand. We saw God's control over nature. We saw how God can change nature in a moment if he chooses to do so. But the splitting of the sea is really a miracle where, uh, where there was a great spiritual revelation. There was this great, powerful spiritual revelation. And that's why we say that a regular person saw a revelation that the um, prophets didn't see because there was at that moment this great spiritual, powerful revelation. What was, what sort of revelation did they have? So in Kabbalah, it explains that our world is split into two. There is the world the revealed world, that's the world that we are familiar with. And there is the hidden world. That is the world that we do not see. So while we see, we live in a world, we see life around us, we have our experiences, at the same time, there are many, many deeper layers of reality going on around us that we don't see at all. Hidden layers, hidden layers of reality that we are impacting and are impacting us that we don't see at all. 
these greater, deeper layers. Ultimately, on a deepest level, God stands below us, and God, or God stands um, around us, and ultimately, God is the deepest layer behind us that is there in everything in this world, in everything in our lives, and we just don't see it. God is the ultimate hiddenness. So there is the revealed world, and there is the hidden world. There is our, uh, what is revealed, and there is what is hidden. And so in our, um, and so when the splitting, and, um, and that is represented in, by the um, land and sea, the land is revealed. In other words, whatever's on the land, you're able to see. What's in the ocean is covered by the ocean, what's covered by the sea. You cannot see it unless you're very up close. You cannot see through the water. It's all covered. So the water represents the hidden reality. Now what happened is, during the moment of the splitting of the sea, Hashem, God, uncovered the hidden reality where we were able to see the hidden reality. Not only could we see how God manipulates creation and God manipulates nature, but we were able to see a deeper reality that we normally don't see. We were able to see a spiritual reality that normally humans are not given to see. And at that moment of the splitting of the sea, we were given the ability to see this deeper reality. And this deeper reality is then able to impact us and recognize that a lot of what we see in life is superficial. Often what you see, it appears um, that it matters. All sorts of things that look like they matter. But the truth is these things don't really matter. They're just superficial. They're not really what's really going on. When you open up the sea, when you open up the hidden reality, you can then see what's really going on, what's going on on a deeper level, what's going on in the deeper layer, not just the superficial reality. And so at the splitting of the sea, Israel was able to see this deeper reality of what was really going on. We are told that every year on the seventh eve of Passover, which is going to be this year on Tuesday evening, we get a, um, we relive it just as on the first night of Passover, we have a Seder and we re relive the Exodus. So too on the seventh night of Passover, we relive this great revelation of the splitting of the sea, where God gives us the ability, if we focus enough, we have the ability to recognize a deeper reality around us, not in the way they saw it then, we don't have that great revelation, but at least a little bit we're able to experience. And then this sense is then able to impact our lives, where it changes our lives to recognize that a lot of the things that we consider such a big deal and so meaningful and so important really don't matter. They're really not all that meaningful. They're really not all that important. I think we saw it a few weeks ago when our entire um, country and our entire world shut down and um, there were a lot of very, very important things. The day before, we had been very, very busy with a lot of things scheduled and a lot of things that we needed to do that were very important and stressing us out. And um, we, had to, we were extremely, extremely busy with lots of important things. And then everything shut down. And all those important things suddenly became unimportant. And we realized that they weren't essential. 
they wouldn't be done. They weren't absolutely necessary. Um, and uh, it gives us perhaps a little bit of this splitting of the sea, the ability to see what is behind our covered reality or our hidden reality, a sense that a lot of the superficial things that we take so seriously don't really matter. Really, there's a deeper reality. There are more important things. There's more meaningful things. Um, things perhaps that we don't see at the moment, but we know are important because the Torah tells us are important, because God tells us are important. And those hidden things, that is what we reveal um, on the seventh day of Passover. Um, we can focus on it, meditate on it, think about it, and hopefully change and allow it to impact us, recognizing that what is what appears important is not important, is really this great deeper reality. And finally, the um, perhaps most importantly, the most important lesson from this mm -hmm. is the miracle that God performed for us at the splitting of the sea. It reminds us God's total control over creation. God creates creation, and God has absolute control over creation. God has absolute control over nature. Now, God does not generally split seas. God does not split seas on a regular basis. Um, it's not something that God does all the time. Um, uh, and um, yet, though God does not do it on a regular basis, um, it's actually something God only did one time. Um, even great, great miracles that um, break nature, God rarely does. The only times God did a, these kind of great miracles was during the Exodus. During the period of the Exodus, there were all these great miracles where um, supernatural miracles that happened continuously. Um, the ten plagues, the splitting of the sea, the manna in the desert, the mm -hmm. um, water in the desert, and continuously there were many miracles throughout that period. However, once Moses dies and they enter the promised land, we don't see regular amazing miracles like that throughout our history. It didn't continue because God didn't want to, continuing, to continue to manipulate nature. God created nature for a purpose. God created nature because that's the way God wants our world to function. God wants our world to work in the natural way. However, we believe that even within nature, even without breaking any of the nature's rules, God still controls nature. And there are enough variables within nature that allows God to manipulate nature without breaking the rules. And so we believe that God does manipulate nature and has performed many miracles for us in the years since. Miracles for our people, when our people were in trouble and God saved us. Miracles for individuals who are in trouble and God saved us. And really miracles for every one of us Times when the, when the unexpected happened, we didn't know how we would get out of something and God helped us. But it's important, we say in our prayers, we thank God, there are daily miracles. We don't even realize how often the unexpected happens. In fact, if you think back in your life, um, I like to do this exercise, I may have done this before in this class, if you think back in your life to the major events in your life, finding um, find, um, the school you got into, finding your first, your spouse, finding your first job, um, moving up in your career, um, other amazing things that have happened in your life, 
most of the amazing things, the good things, the great things that happened in our life did not come with planning, thought through planning. They rather came out of the blue from nowhere. They came suddenly, totally unexpected. And we get this regularly and we don't even realize how many miracles happen to us daily. How many unexpected things happen to us daily because God is manipulating nature. Um, although not always does a miracle happen, not always is someone saved when in trouble. If you think of how often people are saved, how many close calls are there? How many times were you almost in trouble? Just think when you drive, now nobody's driving anymore, but back when you were driving, um, people drove to work, we drove regularly. How many times did we get into almost accidents? How many times did you almost get into trouble? And, and somehow we almost all the time we get out of it. And so it's important to recognize God's miracles. And we need to recognize when something happens to us unexpected, recognize the hand of God in it. Recognize that God is manipulating nature. Recognize that God is looking after us and taking care of us. And we believe that God is taking care of every single one of us, looking out for us and making sure um, most of the time we have what we need. There are, of course, exceptions. When things do go wrong, we don't know why God makes that happen sometimes. But most of the time, the things go right. Um, and uh, it's hard to even imagine how much good God does for us um, I mean, we, we both, many of us perhaps were exposed to the virus um, and didn't get it. We wouldn't even know if we had it and um, if we had no symptoms. And uh, there's so many other miracles that happen for us every day. And perhaps the greatest, the greatest lesson of the splitting of the sea is to remember the daily miracles God make, makes for us. Remember God's hand in our life and always constantly Ask God to help us. God wants to hear us asking him and thanking God for all the good that he does for us. So with this, I encourage you all on the seventh eve of Passover, which will be Tuesday night, to focus on, um, to focus on this, on the splitting of the sea, on the story, on the lessons, the lesson of jumping, of God saving us from all trouble, um, doing, the right, doing the right thing as Nachshon did without asking any questions, um, turning water into land or the hidden world into the, re, re, uh, uh, opening the hidden world, recognizing a deeper reality behind our reality. And finally, recognizing God's daily miracles that he does for us every single day. Um, all the many, many miracles that God is, uh, that God is doing for us. I, um, uh, this coming, sorry, Tuesday night, Wednesday, and Thursday will be Yom Tov again. It will be the last days of Pesach. Um, so it's once again Yom Tov. And um, so again, we do not work on those days, starting Tuesday evening at dusk. Um, I think it's a little after seven. I don't have the time in front of me. Um, and then going on through to um, Thursday night. And then Thursday night after it gets dark, which is a little after eight, Yom Tov ends, and so does Passover end, and then we are able to, um, we are then able to um, eat our chametz, Passover is over. I encourage you to um, join me next week. 
I will be for as long as we are no longer not able to see each other in person. We will continue both on the Zoom and on the um, Facebook. It will um, next week. We are going to talk about does Judaism allow abortion? Is the topic for next week. Now, for those on Zoom, I invite you. Um, I'll open it if anyone has any questions. You can unmute yourself if you're on the phone. Press star six if you are um, on a phone or, or if you're on the Zoom directly online, um, you could just press the mute button and unmute yourself.